Woi woi, woi woi, woi woi. Then it then go on the radio again. Yo, if you wanna smoke free weed, go board yourself. You need to go plant a seed. Go board yourself, make your knowledge increase. Go board yourself, go board yourself. Hey, all right. Welcome to episode 68 of Grow Bud Yourself, you guys. This is amazing. Thank you so much for being a part of it. We have a great show for you guys today, an amazing guest. We have Todd McCormick, cannabis legend, uh, activist, entrepreneur, and patient. Todd McCormick, uh, a lot to talk about with him. We're going to be also talking about cultivation, of course, as always, Um, the importance of air circulation in your grow room, as well as answering questions from listeners like you. Thank you to our sponsors, Excelsior Extracts, Sweet Leaf Nutrients, and Rocket Seeds. Stick around. Episode 68 is coming at you. Hey guys, I want to tell you about one of our favorite sponsors, Excelsior Extracts. Outcast and TOH from Excelsior are incredible people, incredible growers, and they make an amazing product. Their THC-infused pain rub is made by patients for patients, and it provides powerful relief from pain. This product was developed to treat Outcast's chronic pain, and trust me, this is a super potent topical that really works. You can find out more about Excelsior on Instagram at Excelsior Extracts. That's E-X-C-E-L-S-I-O-R-E-X-T-R-A-C-T-S. DM them there to learn more about their amazing pain rub. And don't forget to tell them that Grow Bud Yourself sent you. All right, welcome back. And as always, thank you to DJ Jacques and Winstrong. We love the tune, Grow Bud Yourself, Grow Bud Yourself. <laughs> yes, thank you. So here we are, episode 68. Mike G, how are you? Well, so far, so good, but you know, we're only just getting started. That's right. Uh, 68, time to set it straight. And uh, yeah, we got a great show, but we do have some things. Uh, to follow up on. Yeah, well, last week we uh, had a little bit of a reefer madness in New Jersey uh, section. It smelled like talk- weed was killing people, I think, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, it was, it was, well, why don't we just play it? I came out to feed the cat. My knees, my legs start shaking. I went down on the ground. I just, my head was hurting, my eyes, your eyes go first. I went down on the ground, and finally I could get up. Yeah, that was a a poor gentleman who grappled with the uh, the odor took him to his knees and his eyes went first. Your eyes go first. But the bigger story for people who were tuning in last week. Uh, when we recorded episode 67, the most up-to-date information we had suggested that about half of the state, uh, 50% of the state, about 240 towns in New Jersey, were going to choose to opt out by the deadline, which was August 21st. The show uh, actually went live on August 21st. We recorded it a little bit before then. As it would turn out, those numbers were off. So we should set the record straight. Get this, 71% of New Jersey has opted out of the legal cannabis industry. 400 towns said no to legal marijuana businesses. Yeah, it's just really weird because these are like city councils in these towns that are making these decisions mm-hmm. after the citizens of these towns voted for legalization. So 
they're interfering with democracy. It's right. really insane. And I have an idea actually now for a horror film where the smell of cannabis <laughs> wafts over New Jersey and somehow, uh, you know, ends up shutting down these, these chemical plants and these, you know, rubber factories and whatever the hell else the hell they've got going on in New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, because this natural smell, this gassy cannabis um, basically just just takes people out and it they they drop to the ground <laughs> i thought you were gonna say maybe it, it enters the prohibitionist body and it, it makes them into uh, cannabis activists and everyone Ooh. is happier and weed is embraced and everyone Ooh. holds hands and okay dances. well hey i'm just you know i'm just, we're just workshopping this thing yeah, <laughs> but yes the the numbers are in 71 percent of new jersey towns have opted out um, and as Dan mentioned, it, it is very much a local government thing. The city councils uh, in these towns, they don't need residents' approval to ban cannabis. They simply can do it by passing an ordinance. So basically, if it's a five-person council and the vote is three to two, uh, cannabis is banned in that town, by which we, of course, mean yeah, retail sales or cultivation. Possessing cannabis in these towns will still be legal. That is legal throughout New Jersey. But... As Dan touched on last week, these towns are basically foregoing collecting the tax revenue they could have received from allowing businesses to sell pot in their towns. Yeah, and forcing the citizens of their towns to go to other towns, right. which is increasing the amount of traffic and gas usage and all kinds of other problems, and increasing the revenue of the towns that chose to opt in. Uh, so let's hope if you're a New Jersey resident that your town opted in and you don't have to travel uh, to find your cannabis. And I don't know what these city councils think they're doing or who they think they're protecting, but they're just basically keeping money out of the coffers of their town. And, and I would personally, if I lived in that town, uh, vote them out or run against them and, and move them out of politics uh, entirely because they obviously don't care about the citizens of their town. The citizens can find cannabis and they can just go to another town and get it. Um, the kids, if they're worried about the kids, can find cannabis in the underground uh, and legalizing it keeps those kids from getting it. So I don't know what these people are thinking, but I think, uh, yeah, they need to go because they're just not uh, reflecting the will of the people and the public and the citizens and the people who voted. So I don't know. To me, it's, it's, it's egregious. And I think... Uh, you know, the fact that it's over 70% of the towns is is, is just mind-boggling. I thought 50% was going to end up being way high, like a really yeah. high estimate. And yeah, it was no, we'll below. take them, though, here, you know, here in New York City. We'll take them. Come, you know, by bridge, by tunnel. Spend your money here. Yeah, by yeah. kayak. <laughs> However don't, you can get over. Don't kayak. No? Well, right. I don't know. Jet ski. Jet ski. Find a way. We'll, we'll, um, sell, you, we'll sell you legal bud. Dan will sell you some pot. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you're more, if you're interested at all in learning more about this whole New Jersey situation, we cover it pretty in depth in our most recent newsletter. You could subscribe to that on our website, growbudyourself.com. Um, but just wanted to update everybody uh, as to what is going on in, in the Garden State. <laughs> Irony. <laughs> but we have a we have an excellent show, an incredible interview coming up. Yes, indeed. Um, someone I've. Uh, been in awe of and a fan of for many years and uh has been just 
uh, a tremendous activist for cannabis, for the plant, a uh, medical patient, a uh, pioneer for pot, and someone uh, who I've known for, you know, <laughs> closing in on three decades, uh, our friend Todd McCormick. I just, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him and everything that he's been through. He served uh, five years in federal prison uh, for growing his own cannabis plants uh, for himself and others as a medical patient. So I guess without further ado, why don't we take a break uh, and we will come back uh, with the great Todd McCormick. If you're ready to start your own home grow, you're going to need some seeds. Fortunately, our sponsor Rocket Seeds has you covered. You can find seeds for hundreds of high-quality cannabis varieties at rocketseeds.com, including many of our strains of the Fortnite. Rocket Seeds boasts an incredible inventory of quality-tested cannabis seeds. Whether you're looking for feminized, autoflowering, regular, CBD, or fast version seeds, Rocket Seeds has it all. Plus, Rocket Seeds ships internationally and discreetly and provides excellent customer service. And as a special promotion just for our listeners, you can use the code GBY10 to get 10% off your order at Rocket Seeds. So follow at Rocket Seeds on Instagram. Remember to tell them Danny sent you. And check out rocketseeds.com today and get growing. All right, welcome back to Grow Bud Yourself, and we have a very special guest for you guys. Uh, today, we have uh, someone who's been an activist all of his life uh, for cannabis and uh, a hero of mine as well for many, many, many years. Welcome to the show, Todd McCormick. Thanks for having me, Danny. Good to see you. Appreciate it very much, and uh, great to see you as well. Um, why don't we take people back uh, to your first experiences with cannabis because you were a medical patient as a child is that correct yes unfortunately i had nine tumors uh between ages two and ten and then a tenth tumor when i was about 15 16 in my left arm and i started using cannabis while i was undergoing chemotherapy and radiational therapy at around the age of nine with my mom of all people she read in good housekeeping that it might be useful for people who had cancer and she asked my doctor about it and it, it was literally the ninth time I had a tumor and his response to my mom she said was like you got nothing to lose you know because I wasn't I was thrown up all the time and food was hard and I was always a small kid but I was you know going through chemo even even harder so my mom started uh, let me have some 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 of her joint before I'd go into the chemotherapy and it made a substantial difference in my life yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, it's something you've dedicated your life to. You were the first uh, international prescription for medical cannabis, right? Yeah, yeah. Back in November of 94, doctor in Rotterdam, Dr. Trissell, uh, wrote me a prescription. My, my, my neck is fused together. The first five vertebrae were fused together when I was two years old, and it caused me pain. And I went and saw him when I was on the first cannabis cup <laughs> back in November of 94. And he agreed that it was probably pretty good treatment for me and was open-minded. So he wrote me a prescription that I thought, you know, was just something that we could show people and say, hey, but the more I, I looked at the laws and studied the laws, the more I realized that international prescriptions were actually pretty common and fairly le and, and legal. It's just that nobody had done it with cannabis yet. So uh, it paved the way for, 
what became a very interesting uh, 1990s. I remember meeting you in November of 95. I can't believe it's a quarter century ago. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. Uh, and even, even then, you were already working with Jack Herrer. You were uh, a cultivator. Uh, tell me a little bit about how that all came to pass. Well, you know, as a kid that beat cancer, I had wanderlust and I wanted to go explore the world and I moved to Florida and that was really flat and boring. So I moved to California and uh, I was spending some time in San Diego and I got to read Jack's book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And I was blown away, you know, as somebody that felt, you know, oppressed uh, with cannabis, you know, like as a high school kid, I wouldn't even draw a pot leaf on my pad or anything because I was afraid of the problems that would beget me. So it, it was a real issue. And when I read Jack's book, it was really vindicating. And I felt really like I took a good path. So I called the number on the back and got uh, through to a very uh, enthusiastic hemp initiative team that uh, encouraged me to come on up that day and meet Jack. And I did. And we became best friends immediately and, and started working together and touring the world together. And I became an editor of his book in 1994, The, the Emperor Wears No Clothes. And we became, you know, started doing the initiatives. When I met you, we were doing the 1995 Hemp and Health Initiative. It was before the 1996 uh, 215 initiative that Dennis did. And we were trying to affect change as aggressively as possible because we thought the laws against cannabis were as, as wrong as they could be. Yeah. And you were also arrested for, for cultivation, right? Yeah. My life took a really strange <clears throat> set of of turns uh, in the 90s. I, I, I was motivated by Dennis Perone and what I saw Valerie Carell and, and her then husband Mike Carell doing at uh, WAM, uh, which was Women's Alliance for Medical Marijuana in Santa Cruz. So I opened the San Diego Compassion Club. And unlike what Dennis was doing in San Francisco, I redistributed donated cannabis because San Diego is a lot more conservative of a, of a community. And I didn't want to try to, you know, try to push cannabis capitalism and the reason I called it a compassion club is because I felt like, you know, it's really hard to argue against compassion. If you're a daughter or a son or brother or sister or mother or father who are suffering through cancer, would you deny them a treatment that could help them? And it's really hard for people to argue against that. And uh, because of that, I got a lot of scrutiny on me, to say the least. And uh, I was on my way to Rhode Island to start a compassion club again. And I got busted in Ohio, which kind of put me into the mainstream news New York Times, USA Today, and all that. We ended up beating that case, but while I was fighting it, I ended up moving to Amsterdam, going to the 95 Cannabis Cup, where I saw you before I flew over, because you let me park our car at the place you were working. <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, and then, and then we flew over, and I stayed, stayed over a year, and fell in love with Amsterdam, but it was really cold. And when I was there, I published a magazine called Hemp Life, uh, and that made its way back to California into the hands of a publisher, Peter McWilliams, who was a five-time New York Times bestselling author on a host of subjects, uh, really an amazing person. And he had borrowed heavily uh, from or referenced heavily Jack Harris' book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, in his amazing book, uh, Ain't Nobody's Business If You Do the Absurdity of Consensual Crimes in Our Free Society, which was all of like 800 pages long and is a brilliant book. Um, it, and Peter, I had to read the book for Jack because when, when we would get books that basically, um, referenced the emperor wears no clothes, Jack would look for plagiarism. So I would get assigned the task of reading the whole friggin' book. Um, but that's what introduced me to Peter in, in a way. And, um, 
I got the meeting with Peter and Peter liked me and he gave me a six figure deal. And I, I went, you know, house hunting in LA and wound up in, in a really weird mock style castle located in Bel Air on Stone Canyon, no less. <laughs> and, uh, I had an unlimited amount of money at the time. And I just started, um, growing cannabis because I just come back from Amsterdam. I had like 50,000 plus seeds when I came home and 215 had just passed. And we were really enthusiastic about what that meant, but we were also really naive about what that meant. And uh, when we were pushing the law, the law that passed 215 was not written by Jack. It was written by Dennis and others. And Dennis was afraid of legalization. He thought that if he was too aggressive, it wouldn't pass the ballot. So uh, 215 didn't legalize anything. It only created a, effectively a medical necessity defense that you could only present after they, you know, kicked in your doors and shot your dogs and, and, and killed your crops and arrested you and brought you in front of a judge. And that defense was only good in a state court, it turned out, because we didn't take into consideration federalism uh, when we were writing 215, even though I was on the team of people that were uh, contributing to the verbiage. And that really hurt us. And I got busted in my house with 4,116 plants back in July of 97. And they initially held me on a million dollars bail, uh, which was pretty ridiculous. And then um, they lowered it to half a million dollars. And fortunately for me, Woody Harrelson, who was a good friend, posted my bond in cash. And then Larry Flint's attorneys, who I also met through Woody, uh, showed up and defended me. And Larry and Woody and others helped uh, with my defense fund. And we spent almost $400,000 for the next three years fighting the feds. And I kind of became a cause celeb for the movement, if you will. I was probably the most um, well-known medical marijuana patient in the world for a little while because, unfortunately, I was in the news everywhere, you know. And um, because of that, I ended up uh, meeting a lot of my neighbors like Bill Maher. I did his show Politically Incorrect back in 1998, and we became good friends. And one night I was out with him and I met Hef. And uh, Hef and I became friends. <laughs> he helped found Normal back in 1970 through the Playboy Foundation and was good friends with Keith Straup, who is the, the lawyer who founded Normal. And when Hef and I started talking, he had Keith come out and uh, the three of us had dinner and hung out in the backyard smoking joints at the Playboy Mansion. And that's kind of how I got to, to meet Hef. And, um, and it was a funny story. At that time, I was, I was fighting the government and he asked me if I could get him some, if I'd bring him weed. <laughs> And I was just like, how do you say no to half, you know? So you say yes. And I said, you know, how do I get a hold of you? He said, oh, just call the Playboy, just call the number at the Playboy Mansion. <clears throat> and I says, and ask for you, that worked? And he smiled. He said, that works for you. <laughs> and, uh, and, and for the next couple of years, I was going up there for all the major parties and, um, you know, hanging out and, you know, bringing them weed. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a really amazing uh, experience um, on a lot of levels. Um, and then, unfortunately, I was denied a medical necessity defense. And I was kind of railroaded into a five-year prison sentence, which I had to self-surrender to on January 3rd, 2000. I ironically spent my last uh, night partying uh, for 99-2000 at the Playboy Mansion. And I I didn't even have the heart to tell Hef that I had to surrender myself on Monday because I didn't want to ruin the evening for so many other people. So I just kept it to myself and Bill and a few others that I was with. But uh, I ended up serving five years in prison um, and then getting out of prison in 2004. I wouldn't cooperate, so I served all five years. And, um, and fuck them, I'm, I'm not regretting the decision to do so. And, 
And when I got out, I, I was given uh, the OG Kush cutting uh, that I ha actually had previous to going to prison. And um, I started a nursery and I started making cuttings and getting on my feet by, uh, by basically selling clones. And um, shortly after that, I started uh, the movie production for the union, the business behind getting high, which uh, featured Joe Rogan and Tommy Chong and Dr. Todd McGurria was his last interview before he got cancer and passed away. Dr. Lester Grinspoon was in it. You know me, he rest in peace as well. And then um, shortly after that, Marijuana Policy Project rented the Playboy Mansion's backyard to host parties uh, to raise money and awareness for legalization. And their first party did not go so well. <clears throat> and the person who produced it politely asked me if I would help do it because he felt if he failed again, it would be the last time they had the chance to do it. So in 2007, he let me produce the party. We had Joe Rogan MC. I had DJ Pooh who made Friday uh, DJ for me because we're good friends. Um, uh, Blues Traveler played, uh, Bill Maher came and accepted an award, and the party went really fantastic. So we did 2008, 2009, uh, and it went really well. I mean, the, it seems like a, you know, a little frivolous partying at the Playboy Mansion, but really it's about trying to network. And because we're not rich like Nike, we can't call Michael Jordan and say, hey, can we hire you to be our spokesperson? I have to like, you know, try to guilt Kareem Abdul-Jabbar into making an appearance or like, you know, try to connect, connect with these people on a, on a more human level. And that, and by being able to call them up and say, Hey, I'm producing a party at the Playboy Mansion. Would you consider coming? It would open the door to the conversation of them, you know, if they would help us or not, because, you know, back then it, it wasn't legal cannabis and retail stores everywhere. It was pretty bleak. So we were fighting pretty hard to do it. And then 2009, I rented the LA convention center, a hundred thousand square feet. And I held the THC expo because I was trying to make a point that, cannabis was a demographic or uh, that we should take seriously and that, that we were a group of people with a huge amount of purchasing power. And uh, it went really well. I held the first really large scale indoor um, really expo. I mean, 300 plus vendors and I had uh, about 40 plus thousand people show up that day. It was pretty massive. And um, that year we started production on the, the Culture High, uh, which was our second documentary. And um, that took us five years almost and a million dollars, but I was really proud of it when it came out. Um, the team I, I worked with, I mean, they're really the stars in it, but we were able to get some really good people. Uh, in 2012, I was actually <clears throat> receiving the Cannabis Culture Award with, of all people, Richard Branson. <laughs> so, so I asked him if he would consider being in our documentary. I asked him if he'd seen the union. He said, yeah, I thought it was brilliant. So I said, well, you know, would you consider being in the culture high? And he said, um, I'll consider it. And then he said, yes. And then he liked it so much. He launched it for us on October 1st, 2014. Uh, that put us into, you know, media all over the world. And Netflix signed us again because they had the union for five years, but they put the culture high on. And this time they uh, translated it into 15 languages and showed it in 70 countries for three years. And I think that was kind of helpful too for the bigger push of legalization. But Sadly, Jack passed away in 2010, and when he did, I reorganized and re-edited The Emperor Wears No Clothes, and we put out the 12th edition. Um, we put in this jack-in-the-box that had a copy of his first book, uh, Grass, and then his The Emperor Wears No Clothes, and then the copy of, his, of a movie about his life called The Emperor of Hemp, which I urge everybody to look on YouTube and watch. It's a beautiful documentary about a wonderful person who inspired this whole movement to you know, really kind of take it seriously 
and start looking at the environmental and hemp implications of, of cannabis and not just being, you know, focused on legalization or medical use. So it's been a hell of a journey, really, but it's been worth it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of come full circle because now you and Mel Frank uh, have a seed company uh, and some of these genetics are the original genetics. I mean, obviously, because you guys have connections that go back to those days. And, and of course, Mel Frank. Uh, has... He goes back to those days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 70, exactly. 77 now. Yeah, yeah. He, we've had him on the show. And, and uh, it really, yeah, he has been, you know, documenting the culture and growing and, you know, breeding and all of that for for all of those years. And, and uh, you know, it's amazing because between the two of you guys, I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, 70 or 80 years of, of breeding, selection, cultivation, knowledge, uh, and strain knowledge. Uh, and the company is uh, Authentic Genetics Seed Company or, or AG Seed Co., uh, com where people can can find out more uh, about the genetics and see the entire catalog. But just, I mean, so people understand what we're talking about, this is, you know, this is where you find uh, the original Haze, uh, original Skunk number one, uh, Northern Lights number five, OG Kush, uh, and from the OGs that, you know, have held on to these things for all this time and, and bred them and refined them. Um, and you're also writing for Grow Magazine as well. Uh, so tell me a little bit about these two, you know, sort of new uh, ventures uh, of yours. Sure. Um, in 2015, I think, or 2016, I was approached by a magazine publisher in Eugene who just started up a horticulture magazine called Grow. And he's a really nice guy, um, nickname's Guy. And he convinced me that I should write for him. And it's been a great journey. Uh, we're a perfect bound, um, full color, uh, beautiful horticultural magazine. We focus only on cultivation. We're available at every Barnes and Nobles. Um, so it's nationally syndicated uh, and, well, nationally printed. And um, it's kind of cool. Um, I, I recommend people to check it out. We're at growmag.com and we're at Grow Magazine on Instagram. Uh, now, AG Seedco started really because in 2018 we had the hemp farm bill passed. And that made all parts of the plant with less than three-tenths of a percent THC legal. And there are no cannabinoids in seeds. So it's immediately I was just like, wow, seeds are legal. And um, so I decided to put together a catalog and start making some of the varieties I'd already been working with available. And when I showed it to Mel Frank, we've been friends since 96 when I met him in Amsterdam at one of the cannabis cups. Um, he thought it was a great idea, and um, we're really close friends. And I know he has a refrigerator full of genetics, so I made the comment that you know you should help you know let me sell some of the genetics you're making because they're not going to do anybody any good sitting in your refrigerator. And he said, "Yeah, you're right. Come on over." So that's what got it started. And as of now, I only sell my genetics and and his, um, but not a bad start. And um, because <laughs> of uh, because of my connection with Skunkman Sam, when I was uh, in 2012, when I was getting the Cannabis Culture Award, I was in, in Amsterdam and Skunkman Sam came to the event and I went up to him and, asked, and took the opportunity to ask him if he would sell me the same original Hayes seeds that he sold Neville in the 80s. And he laughed at me, of course. And, and then um, he said, bring over all your best hash and, and come over on Sunday, on uh, Thursday, and, and we'll talk about it. He said, what else do you want? 
I said, I don't know. And he says, I think you want all the seeds that I keep for myself and I don't sell to anybody. I said, oh, those are all the seeds I want, actually. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so I went over with my offerings and, uh, and he ended up hooking me up. You know, it was a really interesting story because at the time I got the seeds, he says, you know, I never sold original hay seeds to Neville. He says, I only gave him a couple male plants. And uh, back at, in the 80s, you know, they really weren't as desirable haze. And when you look at uh, when he went over there and sold seeds to Neville, uh, original haze wasn't on the offering. And when you look at the, you know, the original seed bank catalogs for 85 and 86 and 87, there's, there's no mention of the word haze in any of them. Even the like 26 uh, page uh, article that High Times did on Neville in March of 87, that Hager interviewed him, uh, has no word of the mate. There's, there's not the word haze anywhere in it. Uh, so it kind of proves that Neville did not have haze uh, prior to 1987 when Sam brought over a couple male plants that ended up, he crossed with everything and, you know, basically created a haze empire, even naming the variety after himself um, in such a modest way. Uh, but uh, it blew my mind. And uh, when he explained this to me, you know, I have all the old catalogs. So I came home and researched it all and it all made sense when he told me this, but um, it, it also kind of tripped me out. And he gave me not only original haze, which he has kept as an inbred line since the 70s when he saved it from his neighbor. Um, he gave me all his favorite outcrosses with it. So like Thai haze skunk, he calls thunk and um, haze skunk and Hawaiian indica and haze and Thai and haze and all these outcrosses that he never released to anybody. So I, I felt really honored. And, um, and then he also gave me original skunk one and quite a few others. So I came home with those. And then when I was working with Jim, um, when we were going through his seeds, I found some skunk seeds that he had reproduced in 1996. And he made a funny because when I came home from Amsterdam in 97, I went up to his place when I had the, the, the place in Bel Air because he lives not too far from Bel Air. And um, I picked up the, the skunk one seeds that he had made in, in the summer of 96. He had gotten them from Skunk Man Sam back in the 80s and kept them in his refrigerator, reproduced them that one time, and then put the reproductions from 96 in the refrigerator. I picked some up and then got busted. Well, I start my seed company, and I go over to see him again. And it had been a while, because usually when he visits, he visits me, because I have a bigger house and, and guest rooms. And, and he, we go to the cannabis events up here in Northern California. So when I got to his house, it was a deja vu. And I said, I've been here before, haven't I? He said, yeah. And he held up the little vial of seeds. He goes, Right before you got busted, you came up to get these exact same seeds. And I was like, oh, my God, talk about life derailed. He was like, yeah, a little bit. And uh, when I started growing them out, they were all really acrid smelling like, like real skunks and um, kind of blew my mind. And um, so I did a selection and I reproduced them in 2019. And so now the skunk seeds that I have available on my website have literally only been reproduced twice since the 80s, once in 96 and once in 2019. And uh, they're pretty special. And the original haze seeds that I got in 2012, I started growing uh, and I grew from 2012 to 2019. And then I asked uh, Skunk Man Sam if I could replicate them uh, and make them available to people. And he said, yeah, as long as you do it my way. So uh, I did it his way and uh, in an open pollination in a greenhouse to preserve the genetics and try not to influence them. And the original haze that I have is the original haze. It's, it's friggin' incredible. It, has that smell that's just unmistakable and uh it's kind of like going through like a little time capsule with these things because they're literally un you know 
they haven't been messed up by anybody. There hasn't been decades of breeding. And, you know, unfortunately, through the 80s and 90s and beyond, a lot of people were breeding for speed and yield instead mm -hmm. of overall, overall potency and terpenes. And, and terpenes weren't even a conversation really until 2012, 2013. So now... Um, I'm encouraging everybody that's buying seeds from me and growing our genetics to, to actually start selecting not based on speed, not based on yield, but based on overall quality, overall scent, overall taste, because these olfactory qualities are really what's most important. Because if food doesn't taste good, you, you, you won't eat it, even if it's really nutritious. And it doesn't really matter with the cannabinoid content as much as it matters, do you want to hit it again? Because you can always do another dab you can always roll another joint. But if it doesn't taste or it doesn't smell that great, you're just going to pass on it. And I think that we can really improve the quality of cannabis by going through these varieties that we have and reselecting based on a different set of criteria. And that criteria being quality rather than speed and quantity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think hopefully the fact that people are using a lot of these to make hash with them as well will influence that because it's, it is more about, uh, you know, terpenes and cannabinoids than it is. And also even about surface area. So some of these hazes uh, that might be a little wispier in some ways uh, are actually great for, uh, for, you know, rosin production and hash production uh, and, and very unique uh, in their uh, in their terpene, um, profiles. And I mean, people, obviously there's a, there's a movement these days to kind of go back to the past. Everybody feels like there's so many poly hybrids out there and, and, you know, a lot of bottlenecked genetics. And so everybody's kind of claiming to have the genetics of the past and, and land races. But I mean, these are the real thing. This is Durban poison from Mel Frank and, yep. and original skunk number one. And, an NL5, you know, the, an F2 of NL5, an original Colombian haze, you know, 100% well, haze. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's insane. Yeah, no, and it's right from the sources. You're right. It, it, and you know, you've known me for a quarter of a century, which is an insane thing to say, but it's true. And you know, I know all these people. And uh, so I'm just in a unique position to be a bridge between, you know, these old great growers um, and the West of the world. And, uh, you know, after I wrote that, after Neville passed away and I wrote an article called Legacy of a Legend, uh, Greg McAllister, who is the guy that gave Northern Lights to Neville back in 1984, read my article uh, on my Facebook page and left a, a, a comment. And I saw that comment and it said something about may my Northern Lights legacy live through you forever or something like that. And so I messaged him and said, are you the Greg that gave Northern Lights to Neville? And he said, yeah. And I was like, oh, well, my name's Todd McCormick. And he's like, Todd, I know who you are. I've been following you since the 90s. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And uh, so we started talking and we drummed up a friendship. And, uh, you know, I was on the phone with him for an hour and a half last night. And um, and it was great. And, he, you know, and I got to ask him a lot of stories about Neville and everything. Asked him if he really had haze. He said no. He said not at first. Uh, he always wanted it, but he didn't have it. And then he would never get, send it to uh, Greg, even though Greg sent him Northern Lights. Neville never sent Greg skunk one or, or Hayes, which is blows my mind. But when I, when he told me that I immediately said, I'll send you skunk one and I'll send you original Hayes that I got from Mel Frank and Sam. And he was like, would love that. So I did. And he loved it, you know, and, um, about a year and a half later, he calls me up and said, Hey, my sister passed away. And I said, man, I'm really sorry. He said, well, 
that's not why I'm calling. He said, my family sells some of my old seeds in her, one of her freezers. So I want to send you some. And I said, whoa. So he sent me purest indica, which was um, seeds that he made from the Murphy Stevens book. So Murphy Stevens had this indoor sun shop. He called it up in Seattle. It was one of the first hydroponic stores. Um, his book, How to Grow Marijuana Under Indoors Under Lights, in 1975, is one of the absolute best books I've ever written, read on, on cannabis cultivation, especially considered 1975. He included things like propagation, cloning, mothers, CO2 enrichment, way ahead. What would become standard was in his 75 book. And he had the purest indica that Greg got. And then Greg numbered the Northern Lights plants from um, starting with what would have been Northern Lights number one, which he ironically said he didn't send Neville, but Neville then called one Northern Lights one. But he had the purest indica. And then Northern Lights two was Greg's Afghan crossed with Murphy's Afghan, which was Northern Lights number two, which is easily one of the parent plants of OG Kush. I have a greenhouse full of Northern Lights number two right now, and it is in undoubtedly a parent plant to OG, which I've had for forever too. So it's kind of neat to go back to that. And then he also sent me Northern Lights number five seeds, which are incredible. Um, and I feel really fortunate. So I've been reproducing the NL5 seeds. We just released them to the community. They, to say they were popular would be like a real understatement. And, uh, and then, uh, and then, I am now in the process of uh, releasing NL2, uh, which will be as an F2 as well. I'm trying to preserve the genetics without influencing them right now. Then I'm going to be releasing Purest Indica, which is unbelievable. The plant just looks like leather. It, is, it grows really small. It's super dank, totally resinous. There's a picture of it in the Murphy Stevens book. Uh, one of them, I have like six of them. but uh, And I have a, a photo of it from downstairs, and it looks like the exact same plants really quite incredible so i'm super excited about the northern lights family um at on top of everything skunk man sam has bestowed on me as well as mel frank um because now we're doing this and it's kind of crazy and uh and now next mel frank is getting durban poison seeds directly uh from south africa uh this fall and he has a friend that's collecting all these indigenous varieties and making sure that they have not been uh, you know, kind of uh, infiltrated with European genetics. And I'm excited to start playing with those as well. I mean, Durban is something that Mel Frank has been enjoying since the 70s. And it's kind of neat to be <clears throat> bringing these back and, and looking for quality over quantity and looking for, you know, things that really are what made it exciting, you know, and, and nothing against modern cannabis. I love modern cannabis, but it's you know, you've had, you, you've hosted more cannabis cups than I think anyone else I know. And you would be the, probably the first to say that it's really become quite homogenous, that you can look at a hundred samples. And even though it's a hundred different growers, it's the range is like all eight to nine week varieties. You never see the hazes that we used to experience in Holland here in the North, in North America. You don't see a lot of the things like the that I think that are kind of lost due to commercialized production and uh, a drive to try to meet the market rather than, you know, the market meeting quality. Yes, indeed. Um, what's the best advice you could give to someone, the beginner grower, just planting their first seed, uh, interested in harvesting their own uh, flowers, you know, down the road? What, what's the best advice you can give that person? 
Well, I got to spend a year with old Ed Holloway in Amsterdam and his advice to it was always the KISS method, which was keep it simple, stupid. And uh, I always thought that was a really smart thing. Um, I have done all types of growing and I'm back to growing in soil for terpene production, overall flavor and quality. I, I like whatever the soil does over, you know, rock wool and, and more inert mediums. Uh, I tend to now not spray anything on my plants. Uh, I think a lot of growers have a tendency to overcare for their plants. Uh, realistically, I think that minding the pH of your water and and fertilizing at lower levels than re than recommended uh, is really a better path because I see a lot of people that are really excited about you know dumping a full tank of gas in that pot and you see leaf burn or you see problems with nutrient uptake and that can be avoided with lower levels of feeding and pH is super important and nowadays I tell people that you have to learn about humidity. Um, there's an article on my website called The Mystery Behind Powdery Mildew and it is something I learned about when I started using LED lights because as soon as I eliminated these high intensity discharge lamps and their infrared spectrums of heat, I stopped melting the cuticle layer of wax off of the leaf surface which is actually a very protective surface leaf, uh, a very protective surface that helps the plant uh, barrier against like things like powdery mildew and bugs and such. And by humidifying on the low end of a room and buffering the grow into like a 50 to 60 to 70% uh, humidity range, depending on your temperature, um, you see incredible growth. The plants are able to transpire um, and I've, I've kind of recognized that for years where when I was not humidifying my rooms, I was kind of like, you know, think of growing cannabis, like driving a race car on a racetrack. And on one side of the racetrack is dirt and rocks. And on the other side of the racetrack is like is muddy and wet. And you got to keep the car on the racetrack. If you go on the, the dry side, you, you ruin the car. If you go on the muddy side, you ruin the car. The reason we see dehumidifiers in greenhouses is because they don't want to go on the muddy side with too much moisture and get mold. But unfortunately, for the longest time, we were not humidifying on the low side. So we were kind of like driving the race car in the dry section of the track with humidity levels below 50% and temperature levels over 70 and 80 and literally drying the plants to a crisp. And because of that, the plants couldn't transpire, plants can't breathe. And then suddenly, you know, people are trying to spray you know, anti-fungus and, and anti-bug and whatever else they can to try to save it. And they end up compounding the problem and making it worse. So these days I tell people back off on, on all the things that you can add. I know there's a ton of options that look really cool at the grow store, but realistically clean pH water um, and love is really your best bets. And, um, <laughs> you know, nowadays I also tell people to look at, um, pH controlled water because now we can buy these uh, water machines that uses electrolysis to put out a, an acidic or a alkaline water. And you can actually control things like powdery mildew with um, acidic or alkaline water. You can also uh, control buds with a alkaline or acidic water. Um, it's really the way to go. So uh, I think it's much more organic when you're not using chemicals and spraying things on your plants. And I think overall quality is improved um, when, you know, you're mindful of the end product, you know, because I think too many people spray too much on cannabis. It's one of the reasons that I'm so pro-legalization because I think people 
uh, that don't grow cannabis deserve a right to get clean cannabis. And unfortunately, before legalization here in California, uh, one of the labs, Steep Hill, was reporting 84% of the samples passing through their lab were failing for pesticides and, and molds and such. And that's a lot. And that's what was being tested by farms that were confident that they wouldn't fail. <laughs> so imagine what it's really like. Right. So, right. so buyer beware. And my message is grow your own and fight for home growing laws in whatever state you're in, because I believe that cannabis cultivation is a fundamental human right of our existence and that we should have a right to make our own medicine. Um, and we, sh we shouldn't have to pay $1,600 a pound for organic broccoli. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, how can people find out more about uh, authentic genetics and, and keep up with you on uh, social media and, and, and grow mag and all of that? Um, I am at agseedco.com. Uh, you can go to the website. There's some articles by both me and Mel Frank about preserving seeds and how to use VPD levels to your advantage, like I was just explaining. Um, on social media, I use my real name, Todd P. McCormick, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Um, and I'm at agseedco on Instagram as well. Mel Frank is just at melfrank420 because somebody stole his Mel Frank name before he could grab it on Instagram. But um, you can also check out his wonderful photography. Mel Frank's probably the best photographers in, in cannabis that I ever met going back to the 70s. He has some of the clearest, most beautiful, well-documented images that really preserve the culture in a way I have not seen anyone else do. So it's really a treat to go visit his Instagram page, maybe even more so than mine. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Todd, for being on the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for your insight. Thank you for your uh, decades of uh, hard work for the cannabis plant and your dedication uh, to this amazing healing flower. And uh, thanks for everything, man. Thank you. Uh, well, thanks, Danny. Thanks for being my friend for so long. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we will be back after these messages with more Grow Bud Yourself. If you're a grower or you're thinking about starting your first crop, then you need to know about Sweet Leaf Plant Nutrients. Sweet Leaf has an incredible line of organic fertilizers and, of course, their legacy line that includes organic and some synthetic fertilizers. So check them out at sweetleaf.com. That's S-U-I-T-E-L-E-A-F.com. The code DANKO15 gets you 15% off everything at Sweet Leaf. That's 15% off their signature line of nutrients as well as essentials like complete indoor hydroponic grow tent kits and grow lights, plus awesome apparel, backpacks, and much more. If you join our Patreon, you'll get access to additional codes worth 20 and even 25% off. All Patreon supporters also receive free Sweetleaf nutrients just for signing up. Sweetleaf provides all the tools necessary for the modern gardener. Check them out at sweetleaf.com and remember the code DANKO15. All right, welcome back. And I think we're in the cultivation segment of the show. But we should say thank you to, to Todd McCormick. That was an excellent interview. Absolutely. He is a, a legend of cannabis and a great guy, too. You know, just a good person uh, and someone I have respected for many years and considered a friend and a 
a mentor and someone who, you know, really just is on the pulse of what's going on with cannabis, uh, whether it be the activism side, the uh, culture, the growing, all of it, you know, the industry, everything. So, yeah, shout out to Todd. And I mean, we could do, you know, a whole month of shows with him. He is a, a, a wellspring of knowledge uh, when it comes to cultivation, too, and especially what we what we push, which is, you know, cultivation for personal use and and for medicinal use and spiritual use and all of that. And yeah, so thanks, Todd. Indeed. But speaking of cultivation, uh, as Dan mentioned, this is the cultivation segment, and our listeners know that each week Dan likes to uh, discuss a group topic that will help you become a better grower. So what do you want to talk about this week? Yes, so this week I want to talk about grow room air circulation. And this is different from environmental control and controlling uh, things in the grow room like temperature and humidity, although of course it plays a role. But air movement is so important and circulation is so important uh, that I feel like it deserves its own section. And the important thing to know about air, I mean, everyone knows that, um, you know, warm air rises, heat rises, uh, and that's uh, kind of obvious to people. But also humid air rises, even though it holds water, uh, it's lighter than the air surrounding it. So humid air also rises. And and this is at the same time that CO2 uh, actually settles and drops towards the bottom of your grow room. And that's why air movement's a must, because the air in the room, in the tent, in your grow space, no matter how small or large it is, is very different, whether it be at your medium level, uh, halfway up your plants, or at leaf surface, uh, or even higher than leaf surface. So the closer you get to the grow lights, obviously the hotter it's gonna be. And you really need that air to move around. Uh, if it sits stagnant, even if there's CO2, uh, the CO2 drops to the floor, like as mentioned, uh, the humid air rises and you're left with this pocket of uh, basically spent uh, air in the middle that doesn't do anything for your plants. And the plants, uh, you know, it's vital for them to be healthy at all times and to move that air around. Um, so oscillating fans are very important. Uh, they move air around, but it's important where they're moving it to as well. Um, they also are able to cool the air a little bit, you know, but they're, they're circulating it, but they're really just moving it around. Uh, floor fans are really good to have as well. Just remember that any air you pull into your space uh, through your intake fan should come in uh, fairly low into the room. That's because you want that cool air to come in low. Then you want fans within your space to move that air around. And then you want to pull that spent hot humid air out with an exhaust fan. So you've got your intake fan. Um, you've got your floor fan or your oscillating fans uh, moving air around and then you have your exhaust fan and a simple thing uh, a trick I learned years ago is Before you have any plants in your tent or in your space or anything But once you have it set up so that the, the the fans are all set up there and everything's ready to go Go and sit in the room sit somewhere near your where your intake fan is and smoke a joint and just follow the smoke um, watch the smoke as it sort of flies around the room and if it starts low and then kind of moves its way up and sort of circulates at that um, plant level around 
and then makes its way up t towards where you know the lights are and everything and then gets sucked out through your exhaust fan eventually then you know that the air is moving and you've got like the proper circulation going on and so that's a just a simple little trick you can do to figure out how your air circulation is working uh, you can do that with incense you can do it with you know any other kind of smoke as well if you don't want to smoke uh, cannabis in your grow room but um, it's it's an important thing and it's different from climate control climate control is making sure that the temperature of that air and the humidity level of that air is at the proper level but that air is constantly moving and circulating and, it, and you really almost want to see the leaves of your plants sort of dancing around and moving because the minute they become still and stagnant and the air is still and stagnant around them they stop growing and you can be pumping in co2 and it could be settling into the last you know foot or two of your grow room and you can be pulling air out at the top but without that circulation uh you're really not getting the proper movement of that air and not only does it allow for co2 to get to the leaves but it also keeps uh mold and mildew and things like that from settling onto the leaves so it is really important anything you can do to facilitate airflow including taking off a lot of the lower branches that aren't going to produce a lot of flowers anyway um, anything that doesn't see any light um, in your space just trim that off at the um, at the base or at the stalk and uh, that'll also allow more air to flow underneath your plants and and really keep them from from being damaged by things like mold and mildew so remember about air circulation and you know this works outdoors as well i mean you have less control over it but um you certainly want your plants to be in a space where the air is moving and uh they're they're sort of constantly blowing around and then you'll know not only will the plant be getting stronger from you know being able to resist the wind and, and whatever that might be but uh but it'll have enough co2 to continue the process of photosynthesis so uh, air circulation very important sometimes forgotten but uh, a very important part of growing so keep that in mind keep that air moving all right keep the air moving says danko that was the uh, the grow tip for episode 68 and now we move on to the question and answer portion of the show and if you have a question that you would like answered on the show get in touch with us you could email us once again, that email is info at growbudyourself.com. You could also reach us on the socials, etc. So uh, what do you say we, we jump right in here? Let's do it. All right, let's go to uh, Vancouver, Canada first with MP Pooch, who writes, uh, Hey guys, love the show. Uh, I've been growing only autoflowers for the past couple of years, usually just one to two plants at a time due to my limited space. Uh, I've been steadily getting better and bigger yields with each grow, but due to my limited space, I use LST, a uh, low-stress training, and this is working well. I'm interested in trying topping my plant to see what kind of result I'll get, but I don't want to mess it up. Do you recommend topping? And if so, uh, what's the best time to do that? Uh, so, yeah, what, what would you say here to MP Pooch? Yeah, um, because you're growing autoflowers, I would not really recommend topping uh, just because you have such a short window of growth. I mean, um, the veg time on autos is a matter of weeks rather than months, so you really don't have much time to top them. If you were going to top them, I would do it very, very early on, uh, basically after the second or third uh, 
leaves have appeared, second or third nodes from, you know, basically a seedling. But I think what you're doing with low uh, LST or, or low stress techniques uh, is going to be better off for autos uh, because you don't lose any tops that way. You know, you just um, rather than topping your plant and cutting off a potential uh, main cola, you're just basically uh, lowering the branches and, and bending them so that you end up with more main colas. And I think that's definitely uh, more advised for, especially for autoflowers. Now, if you're growing uh, feminized or regular plants, it's a little bit different and you do have a, a larger window of opportunity to do some topping if you so choose. But I think uh, you're well on the right path with the, uh, the low stress uh, techniques uh, rather you know, than topping for autoflowers. Okay, great. Uh, we hope that helps you out there, MP Pooch. Let's move on to Tyler. And Tyler writes, uh, hey guys, love the show. Uh, where is the best placement for a thermometer? Hmm. No, wait, nope, there's more. Uh, where is the best placement for a thermometer in a small grow tent? Uh, I've got a 2x4 tent, and I have a thermometer that sits on top of the soil in a 5-gallon grow bag and another thermometer about halfway up the tent fixed to the side. The reeds are about 10 degrees different with the lights on. I am at 81 degrees from the wall thermometer and 71 from the base of the soil. So uh, I'm a little concerned, and I don't want fluffy nugs uh, specifically related to autoflowers. What would you say to Tyler? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's smart that you have two different thermometers, and I think it's wise to have one at soil level and one uh, at basically canopy level. You said it's about halfway up the tent. Uh, it's important to know because, as you mentioned, those two temperatures can be very different. Uh, yours are 10 degrees apart, and I would imagine, you know, you said it's halfway up the tent, uh, fixed to the side of the tent. I think if you put that thermometer right where you're, your the top of your canopy is that might even go up to you know above 81 and 84 85 degrees there um so i would say if you only have one thermometer i would keep it basically right around uh canopy level so that you actually know your leaf surface temperature what what the temperature is right there at the top of where your plants live uh, but if you have a few it's smart to have one down like you said near near to the soil and maybe one even higher up above your light so that you know uh, if you have uh, 90 plus temps up there that you have to exhaust uh, that air much quicker. We talked about air circulation and it is important partly just to pull some of that hot spent air out of the room and that allows for cooler air to come in and lower your temps. Uh, so it is important to keep in mind that the temperature in your tent can vary very differently uh, from canopy level and leaf surface level to uh, the floor of the tent or the ceiling of the tent. So uh, I think the best placement is right at, at the canopy level because that's what that's where uh, your plants are doing the most of their growth and, and everything. And if that gets up, you know, 85 or 90, you really need to make some changes and, and cool that cool that air down, uh, pull more of it out and, and find a way to get it cooler at that level. All right, great. Um, there you go, Tyler. And I uh, hope that helps you with the thermometer situation. Let's move on. Uh, this is a question from Patreon, and it comes from Thunderdank. And he writes, hey, guys, huge fan of the show. You've helped me tremendously. 
keep up the good work. I come to you with a question about controlling temperatures in the grow tent. So this is actually going to be a little similar to uh, to both Tyler's question and the grow tip, but a little different. So he writes, uh, I'm in a three by six tent with two Mars Hydro TS-1000s. I have an exhaust fan and a carbon filter, as well as two oscillating fans on the tent floor for circulation. In spite of this, I still find my temperatures creeping above 90 degrees when my lights are on, even though I run them at night to try to keep the temps low. I've removed the ballasts from the lights and put them outside the tent, and I know I can't keep doing what I'm doing once I flip my girls to flower, uh, which is leaving the grow room door open to allow the hot air inside the tent to vent out of the room. In flower, that will cause light leaks. So, any tips? So what would you say there to Thunderdank? Yeah, I mean, we talked about air circulation, but air circulation only goes so far. I think you need air conditioning uh, of some kind to bring that temperature down. I know you're in the south. It's summertime. Uh, a lot of the growers I know in hot areas like that, they take the summer off, basically, because it's just too hot. Uh, and you just got to run AC all the time. And, I, and AC comes with its own issues, tends to um, dry the air out as well. And then you need to add humidification. So... Uh, you're really the only solution you've got is uh, air conditioning because you're growing in a tent. I think if you were in you know a larger space, a big huge greenhouse or something, you know you could look into swamp coolers and things. But uh, you're just in a tent in a room, and if you can get that room that your the tent is in air conditioned, I think you can bring those temps down. If you can get that room that the tent is in light proof then maybe you can keep that door open and not have to worry about light leaks. But that's a whole other situation. That would let more air flow, uh, but you would definitely be uh, at risk of allowing light to reach your flowering plants during the dark cycle, which would then uh, either trigger them to stay in their vegetative stage or hermaphrodite or freak out or whatever. So uh i don't know to me it seems like air conditioning or uh vacationing in the summer are your two solutions for your problems and i hope uh that helps and doesn't uh keep you from sticking with it but uh again you know temperatures over 90 degrees are really going to be rough especially over a prolonged period of time all right there you go uh thank you Funderdank. i think we got time for one more uh so let's stick with patreon and go to cody and Cody writes, uh, hello, I have sort of a dumb question for you. I'm growing one plant in a studio apartment. The county requires an apartment to be inspected once every two years. Hmm. Uh, this month is going to be the inspection. I'm in a legal state, so I'm not worried about the law, but growing might be against the terms of my lease, and I really just don't want anyone to know what I'm doing. My game plan right now is to schedule the inspection for a day, break down my setup, and move the plant to my car until the inspection is done. My other ideas are not consenting to the inspection and just dealing with the consequences, or tossing the plant altogether. I'm two months in on an autoflower grow, so it's not a big loss, but that's not ideal. Uh, any tips or suggestions? Thank you for all your advice. So yeah, uh, Cody has a sort of breaking bad scenario here where he wants to, <laughs> wants to break everything down and put it back together. What, what would you say to Cody? Yeah, I mean, first I would say uh, this whole question gave me a little bit of PTSD because I've been through this situation before. And actually it was in uh, here in Brooklyn growing in a, uh, a loft building. Uh, substantially more than one plant 
I, I should say as well. Um, and it was firemen coming to do an inspection. Uh, and, you know, at first, you know, you're defiant and you're like, hey, you know, you need a warrant. You need this, that. Nope. Sorry. This is not a li- this is a live work type situation. And there needs to be sprinklers in every room and we need to inspect. And this is just a, a, a routine thing. And I have had to shut down grow rooms in the middle of the night. Uh, rent trucks, put, move everything into the truck and, and uh, you know, move on with the inspection, even knowing that, of course, these firemen aren't aren't dum-dums and they know what's going on in this weird special dark room that just got emptied out of all of its equipment. Uh, so much so that they're just joking about it, you know, at some point, like, hey, dark room looks more like a light room, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and eventually ended up moving out of that apartment, uh, obviously, because it had been compromised by that visit. That was a good call. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, that's what I'm saying. So, But you've got one plant, you're in a studio apartment. I don't think you're, you're quite on the level of uh, where you're going to really need to freak out about this. I think... You know, your idea of basically just shutting down uh, for that day is much better than not consenting to the inspection, which, uh, again, it's a requirement. You kind of have to consent to it at some point. Um, So the consequences of that, I don't know, but you you certainly don't want to do that and cause any kind of concern. Tossing the plant also, you know, two months in, not such a great idea, especially with an autoflower. It should be almost done at that point. So I think your best bet is to do what you said, just... uh, you know, shut the space down, uh, move the plant out of the space one way or another. Maybe the car is not the best plan, but uh, somewhere else. And then uh, and then have the inspection done and then move everything back in and continue as necessary. But uh, yeah, man, <laughs> I do not uh, I do not uh, look back fondly at having to do this all all this work in the middle of the night. Uh, to shut down a big grow space and then uh, basically have these guys come in and, and joke around and, and then leave and have to shut everything down uh, within a month of, of that. So, yeah, man, you know, like I said, inspections uh, suck. And other than that, I mean, if police come to your door, you should always ask for a warrant. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, this uh, I've never heard of such a thing. I've lived in Manhattan for uh, over 20 years and, and nobody has ever demanded to inspect my apartment but uh this sounds horrible um but hopefully you get it all figured out there cody um yeah it would be a shame to lose the work you've done so far so hopefully that helps you out unfortunately uh that is all the time we have but we will be taking a question over on patreon if you're interested it's going to be about a number of things including uh how to get your plants to turn purple so tune over to uh patreon our bonus grow q a uh, clip for episode 68 uh, thank you to everybody who wrote in this week. And uh, if you have a question that you would like answered on the show, get in touch with us. Uh, you could email us once again. That is info at growbudyourself.com. What do you say we take a little break, come back and wrap this up? Let's do it. All right. Welcome back. And I think it's time for the wrap this one is one for the books, you guys. Episode 68, uh, we laughed, we cried. It was better than cats. But yeah, man, thank you to Todd McCormick uh, for being the guest on the show. That was epic uh, for me. Uh, really a full circle thing. When I was young, uh, he was one of the people I really looked up to. Uh, not much older than me, but someone who really uh, fought the good fight 
all his life and uh, gotta give him flowers for that. Uh, so thank you to Todd. Thank you to Jacques and Winstrong. Thank you to our sponsors, uh, Excelsior Extracts, uh, THC infused pain relief rub. Um, shout out to Tommy and Elaine. We love you guys. Sweet Leaf Nutrients. Remember Danko 15 gets you 15% off. You can get even better codes uh, if you join our Patreon, which we really appreciate it if you would do. Uh, Rocket Seeds, an amazing seed bank, uh, seed bank where the code GBY10, GBY standing for grow bud yourself. And then the number 10 gets you 10% off of all of their seeds. Uh, so please visit rocketseeds.com and check out at rocket underscore seeds on Instagram. Uh, tell them we sent you. We really appreciate their support. Uh, Vapor.com, also an affiliate. So use the code GROWBUDYOURSELF20 for 20% off everything site-wide. And that's insane to me because it's 20% off of literally every volcano or peak uh, or anything else that they have. The Peak Pro has been just killing it for me. I love it. And uh, it's really my daily uh, driver when it comes to uh, consuming extracts aside from any kind of rigs or anything like that. Um, thank you to my co-host, producer, and uh, work wife, Mike G. How are you, Mike? I'm great, Dan. <laughs> all right. Well, shit, you guys. Episode number 68. Uh, all the sponsors have been mentioned. Todd has been mentioned. Mike has been mentioned. The, uh, the amazing musicians... DJ Jacques and Winstrong. Wait, are you are you rapping the rap? Is this a recap of the recap? Yeah. It's, it's a rap of the rap. Oh my gosh. <laughs> double rap. All right, never mind you guys. It, what is this? A, a double header today? Yeah, two <laughs> Feels games. Like it. <laughs> it's a long one. But anyways, it's over. We won them both. Let's put it in the books. We'll see you next week with episode number 69. Your eyes go first.